Our scripture this morning takes us back into the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter five, starting at verse 27, and reading through the end of this little story in verse 32. We're continuing our series on the art of neighboring, and this story today is helping to look at a little bit of how fear <laughs> operates in how we neighbor, how it can be an obstacle, but also an invitation. So here's our story for walking into that theme. Listen then for the voice of God. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Because there is such a glut of shows to stream and so many different streaming platforms, there's just too many new shows to know about or even hear about which I think is one of the reasons that I completely missed that there are seven seasons of a Canadian-American true crime documentary show called Fear Thy Neighbor. A season two episode entitled Lake of Madness is pretty typical about what a show is like. Here is the episode description. A family moves into a Minnesota lake house. But their older neighbor next door disputes their rights to lake access, and the neighbors argue over property lines. Numerous heated debates between the neighbors eventually lead to dun-dun-dun murder. In another episode with a catchy title, Good Fences Make Dead Neighbors, tells the story of an eight-year feud between neighbors that, according to that episode description, finally ends with blast from a shotgun. There's seven seasons of this show. Seven seasons. And remember, this is not the work of writers' imaginations. This stuff doesn't just get maybe sensationalized, absolutely, but not made up. And these kinds of shows say a lot about our fear of the other, our fear of our neighbor, also a lot about the fact that we want to watch shows like this. I won't get into that. But they seem to feed into and justify our fear of these people that we live in such close proximity to and know very little about. Now, thankfully, I don't think these stories are the norm for our general state of neighborliness. In fact, to mark the 50th anniversary of the first episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, the Pew Research Center 
set about to actually get the facts, the state of neighborliness. And in contrast to the sensationalized fear-mongering and violence of fear thy neighbor and shows like it, the survey results reveal kind of the more ordinary, everyday reality of how we tend to neighbor. The survey was done in 2018, so pre-pandemic, so who knows how this shaped or changed that. But at that time, the survey results showed that older folks are actually more likely to know their neighbors than younger folks. They found that a quarter of those surveyed said they know most of their immediate neighbors by name. Almost a quarter. Less than 25% of us know the first names of the people that live around us. And they found that even in today's digital age, interactions with neighbors are actually one of the few areas of society where we still tend to do in-person over message or email. They also found that about two-thirds of those surveyed say they have a neighbor they trust with their house keys, which I thought was pretty good, two-thirds. They also found that rural neighbors are more likely to know most or all of their neighbors by name, but not necessarily interact with them more than, their, than those who live in urban neighborhoods. But what I found most interesting was the results that revealed who we neighbor and why. The survey revealed that people tended to interact more with their neighbors who were like them. Whether race or social class or education or especially political views. So if your neighbors look like you and think like you and vote like you and spend like you, you are more likely to reach out and connect with them. And then, not only are you more likely to know their names and interact, you are more likely to hang out with them socially, to build community together, to do life with those like you. I don't think that's necessarily surprising. <laughs> I think it's human nature. We're drawn to those like us, and we tend to separate from those who aren't. Now, unlike the true crime show, fearing our neighbors doesn't usually end in violence or murder. But for us, our everyday, ordinary fear of our neighbor, keeping distance from them because they're not like us, can lead to more everyday, ordinary kinds of harm. Maybe not reaching out because that neighbor a few houses down, they had the wrong color political, pol like political sign on their lawn during the election. And now you kind of keep your distance. Or when you kind of think about who you know in your neighborhood, maybe you're a homeowner and you only know the names of other homeowners and not those who rent on your street. Or maybe you judge the neighbor up the street who has kind of a too manicured lawn your concern for the pollinators, or maybe 
you judge the person who has the messy naturalized lawn because to you it's just way too messy. Or you're avoiding that family in the apartment down the hall from you because their family setup, the makeup of their family doesn't, doesn't look like yours. Who we neighbor matters. And, and often, because it is our human nature, we let our fear of difference of what is not like us dictate who we associate with and who we keep distance from. Our portion of scripture this morning, the small story of calling and discipleship and table manners shows us two different approaches to neighboring. The beats of the story are simple. It's small, it's tiny. Jesus calls Levi to follow him, Levi does. Levi throws a big party for Jesus, invites those people he knows, his friends. And then the Pharisees complain about who's at the table with Jesus, and then Jesus responds to their complaint. Pretty simple, pretty bare bones, actually. But at the heart of the story is about whether or not our communities of faith are determined more by who we keep distance from or who we associate with. Is the movement of the gospel toward others or away from them? There's a first century proverb that says, I saw them eating and I know who they are which points to the social structure at play here in this story. It's a social structure embedded in table etiquette, who you eat with and who you do not eat with. Your place at the table reveals everything about you. Your rank, your importance, your social standing, your economic worth, everything. To know the seating chart of a dinner in first century Palestine was everything you needed to know about who was at that dinner and who wasn't. Which also seems like deeply human nature, whether it's first century Palestine or 21st century Canada, who we associate with, who we keep distance from, reveals who we are and what and who we value. Levi and his friends that gathered around Jesus were not welcome in the circles of religious leaders. The Pharisees label them sinners in this passage because according to their rules of their community of faith, they were. It wasn't personal opinion. They fell short. They fell short of entry into their community of faith. And so the religious leaders keep their distance. They'd never be caught dead sitting down with any of them, Levi or any of his friends. And then they complain that Jesus isn't following the rules. He should be like them. Distancing, separating with people like that. Luke tells us that the religious leaders complained to Jesus' disciples 
Why do you eat? Why do you drink with tax collectors like Levi and sinners like his friends? Why are you associating with them? Which maybe you're wondering, what are the Pharisees doing there anyway? How do they know who's at the table and who's not? We tend to think of dinner parties as private affairs, something that happens in our dining room with the front door closed or at least the screen door, or in our backyard barbecue with the front gate closed only to those we invite in. But a party, a great banquet like the one Levi is throwing, that, that's a public affair. You might not get a spot at the table, but it's a community event that people will be talking about. And so you kind of have hangers on, people who watch the party from a distance, even though they're not invited. You could still remain separate from it. And that's what the religious leaders were doing. They were close enough to see and judge who was at the table, but able to stay far enough away so that folks wouldn't think they were the ones eating and drinking with people like that. And so it's from the edge of the party that the Pharisees tug on the sleeve of a disciple sitting at the table a little farther out from the center and complain. In contrast, when Jesus replies and answers their complaint, it is from the center of the party. It's from the head of the table. Over the noise of conversation and laughter and general dinner party chatter, Jesus hears their complaint and before his disciples can say anything, says with a proverb and an invitation, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Repentance. The religious leaders understood calling sinners to repentance. That's not why they're scandalized by Jesus being at the table. The scandal for them is that Jesus didn't demand repentance before he sat at the table with them. The religious leaders keep their distance from those at the table and only sit down at supper with them after they've repented, after they've changed their ways, after those sinners look more like these religious leaders, look more like us, and then, and then maybe we won't keep our distance. Jesus refuses to keep his distance. He joins them at the table with no prerequisite of repentance, simply offering the gracious transformation of his presence with them and for them. Both Luke and Jesus kind of leave 
the application up in the air here of the story. Would you rather be a sinner next to Jesus at the table or a righteous person on the outside looking in? Do you go towards or do you draw back? And I have to think that even Jesus' words of invitation, even his words to the Pharisees are invitation. Jesus himself doesn't push away distance from the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He's saying, stop standing apart. Stop keeping your distance. Take your seat at the table. And sit next to the one who can make you well. I said earlier that the heart of the story, the tension of this story, is about whether or not our communities of faith are determined more by who we keep a distance from or who we associate with. Is the movement of the gospel towards others or away from them? We don't need a Pew Research survey on the state of neighborliness to tell us that it's in our human nature to neighbor those like us, who look like us, who vote like us, who think like us, and it's human nature to fear those who don't. But as followers of Jesus, our model of neighboring is not one built on fear and separation. As followers of Jesus, our model of neighboring is one built on bridging differences and overcoming our fears. It's building up community by invitation and by relationship. Which means that wrong color political sign up in your neighbor's lawn a few weeks ago is not a reason to keep your distance. It's a conversation starter. And not only do you get to know those if you're a homeowner who own a home, you get to know those who rent on your street too. And then you also pay attention to the crisis of affordable housing in our region and the way that that inequality plays out on your street. And rather than looking down your nose at your neighbor with the overly manicured lawn or the messy naturalized one, you start up a conversation about which plants are their favorite in their yard and go from there. And instead of avoiding the family in the apartment down the hall, because their family setup looks different than your idea of the nuclear mother, dad, two kids, maybe you reach out with a word of encouragement to them. Because every family, no matter how they family, <laughs> can use a little support and encouragement.
while fear and separation may be in our human nature, and we're Calvinists, so we fully understand the weight of that. We also know and trust that the transformation that builds up the beloved community of Jesus comes from the gospel impulse towards others and not away from them. It is a movement of grace and not fear. I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates the opening of the Gospel of John, where he gives us this beautiful metaphor for the way that Jesus is with us. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. Jesus became our neighbor, associating with folks not like himself, thanks be to God. Not keeping his distance, thanks be to God. But taking a seat at our table with sinners like us, thanks be to God. So may we be the kind of neighbors that reach out across differences. May we as followers of Jesus associate with those not like us with curiosity, with vulnerability, with good humor. And may the Holy Spirit, that as we heard in the promises of baptism, the Holy Spirit who renews us day after day after day into the likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, may that same Spirit push against our inclination to keep our distance, help us to fight our fears, and push us towards others with grace. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, take up this word of God, this story of how our Jesus loves, and form and shape us with it. You know the areas of our life, you know the shape of our neighborhoods, where we can be more like Jesus, act more like him, and where we already are. Keep us attentive to your ways of love, to your promises of grace, and keep nudging us towards others because you have called us to follow, to follow Jesus. May we neighbor like him. In the name of Jesus, our neighbor, we pray. Amen.